Welcome to the Canteen Podcast, a show for anyone who has feelings about food. Join host Ali Houston as guests open up about their relationship with food and their thoughts on nutrition. Nourish yourself with the Canteen Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of the Canteen Podcast. I'm your host, Ali Houston. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. Please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Thanks, and enjoy the show. All right, and we are recording. And I'm delighted to have with me today Graham Phillips who is an award-winning pharmacist who goes by the name, the pharmacist who gave up drugs. Welcome. Morning, Ali. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Good. How are you? Yeah, really good. It kind of feels like we're old friends since we met on that, what was it, on Dan Grief's podcast with those two GPs around New Year. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was a really nice discussion. Um, it was. Really appreciate you coming on. No, it's it's a pleasure. I've sort of I've been following your progress. I didn't know you really up to then. I'd heard the name, and I've been following your story with with, with interest. And um, I've listened to quite a few of your podcasts. I have to congratulate you on your body of work. Uh, the people that you've interviewed, fantastic, and some of the information and detail there, absolutely outstanding. And uh, I've learnt loads. So you know, um, I've become an avid fan now. Oh well, thanks. I really appreciate it. Um, there's a lot of time goes into it, obviously, and. It's it's been great for me just to meet these people uh, online and and chat to them. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking today and to you know all the all the potential future episodes that that uh, that we can that we can get. So um, yeah, I, I became aware of you uh, last year, and it was clear that there was something quite interesting going on. You know, a pharmacist who gave up drugs. That's a provocative name, and yeah. so maybe you can just tell us about you and how you reached your current position on health. Sure, sure. Um, so I kind of I, I can't remember ever not being a pharmacist in the sense that my dad's a pharmacist, my son's a pharmacist, um, so we're a sad pharmacy family. And my dad was a community pharmacist with a PhD, um, and actually. People don't realise that the, a pharmacy degree is incredibly wide-ranging science, uh, life science degree. So we learn physiology, human biology, biochemistry, microbiology, three, you know, stereochemistry, you know, because we've got to understand how to manufacture drugs, how they act on the body, how the body disposes of them. So you have a really very fundamental submolecular scientific understanding. Um, and my father's a brilliant example of that, actually, because he started off working at the bench as a pharmaceutical chemist. And you know the drug Imodium? Yeah. All heard of Imodium. That was my dad's PhD. Oh, wow. Unfortunately, he made nothing out of it because Janssen had the license, but he did the work. Ah. So it kind of shows you the breadth and depth of what pharmacy can be. Um, but my first recollection of community pharmacy was my dad... Um, and he's, he's a PhD, so he, when, when people call him Dr. Phillips, um, people don't realise, in the medical profession, it's an honorary title. Um, in, if you've got an academic PhD, it's actually earned. So um, 
he had a, he had this pharmacy in a rundown area not far outside Heathrow. And my earliest memories were at the, sitting at the back of this pharmacy making out mismagtrisil, mag, mis mag which no one actually drinks anymore. But it's magnesium trisilicate. It was a kind of, back in those days, that was as good as it got for heartburn. Is that milk and magnesium? It is milk and magnesium, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And we used to make it, um, you could, the, the pharmacies traditionally, you'd, you'd have pestle and mortar and you'd get pulv pro, pro, so you'd get the powder, then you'd add the ingredients and you'd, you'd mix it. So it's like, a bit, bit like making a cake, really, organic. It's, organic chemistry and cooking have got a lot in common. And that's my earliest memories. I must have been five or six years old. And um, I suppose my dad was my hero, really, in the sense that, the you know he made a decent living not a fortune but it was the respect in which he was held in his local community and the advice that i saw him giving i just thought you know what's not to like you've got a reasonable income certainly at that time it was quite uh, a lot more profitable but also you know i think if you're a health professional you you have to feel that you're doing some good and if it's not about that, then go and do something else. Because most health professionals have got a lot of talents and they could apply those talents in lots of ways, some of which will be much more remunerative and some of which will be much more satisfying in other ways. So that was the start of my journey. And I did uh, a, a degree in pharmacy at the School of Pharmacy. And um, I then, the, the, I was only ever going to have my own pharmacy. That was my dream. And so I got qualified, and while other while my colleagues were having expensive holidays and buying expensive cars and, spe and you know spending money, what I used to do, I, I got a job managing a pharmacy, and on my day off, I used to locum. So instead of going out and spending a couple of hundred quid, I made a couple of hundred quid. All very sad, but I had this vision of getting my first pharmacy, and I got I was think I was 26 when I managed to scrimp and save and somehow beg, borrow and steal just enough money to buy a rundown pharmacy. And I thought that was going to be my life. I now had my pharmacy. I built up a fantastic, um, you know, it was quite run down, and it was in St Albans, and I built this fantastic relationship with the local community. Um, I, I, I had lots of baby care back in those days. You know, people bought their nappies and their pampers and all that in a pharmacy because it's in a supermarket now. And there was a big Italian community who became my firm friends, um, quite a, uh, an active Polish community and a Bangladeshi community. And, you know, St Albans has become more and more cosmopolitan. I lived there for, ended up living there and lived there for 25 years. So it, it really was community pharmacy in its fullest sense, and I just loved it. But after about three, four years, I thought, I'm starting to get bored within these four walls. What else is out there? And I bought a second branch. And then you have to learn how to run a multi-site business because you have to run something at arm's length. Long story short, I in the end ended up with 10 branches. And I ended up again on a journey towards the um, professional leadership. So I had this vision for what I thought pharmacy could be, and we were nowhere near it. So I ended up being elected to the Pharmaceutical Society, which is our professional body, and I ended up working with a group of colleagues, uh, and we completely restructured the profession. Because back in that time, there was one body that was both the regulator and the professional body, and it was conflicted, because either you represent the interests of the profession or you represent the interests of and regulate interests of patients you can't do both 
And we ended up with a profession that was so regulated. I, you know, when I'm talking to pharmacists, I say we're so frightened of doing any harm that we don't do any bloody good. And, you know, become risk averse rather than risk management. So I had this incredible uh, journey and it was such an honour because I met so many people in my own profession. But through the Pharmaceutical Society, I met lots of senior people in other professions, notably the medical professions. So I got to know um, the heads of some of the other Royal Colleges, particularly the Royal College of GPs, but some of the others. And I also got strong links with both Public Health England and NHS England. So it was, you know, it was an amazing, fantastic journey, well beyond any dreams I ever had. I thought I was going to have a corner shop pharmacy for the rest of my life. And then I started to think, because I was exposed to other ways of working, I realised that the best of general practice is fantastic and in many ways exceeds the best of general practice pharmacy. And I decided to recreate my pharmacy group as a general practice pharmacy group. So, you know, if you think about the best of general practice, you have GPs with a special interest. We started to develop that kind of thing. Uh, we started to get involved in research. Um, we started getting academic attributions. And we won all these prizes. So we basically won every pharmacy award and most of them twice. At the end of all of which, I ended up dissatisfied. And this is kind of the bit that's, I suppose, most relevant to our conversation, really. Because I realised that people, you know, you start off as a health professional thinking you're going to help people. And in the end, you just realise that you're in this escalating milieu of diabetes and cardiovascular disease and overweight. And you're putting more and more tablets into people. And they don't ever get better. I mean, very rarely do they get better. You know, they, you end up suppressing symptoms and the symptoms get worse and you give them more medication. You know, don't knock it, it's a living. I mean, I get that. But I, I, we reach the point where, you know, it feels like half the country's taking statins, half the country's taking antidepressants, a lot of people are taking both. In other words, we're medicating an entire society. That can't be right, can it? That cannot be right. And that kind of allied with my own personal health journey, which was I started out as a fat kid, and I was a fat kid when most of the kids were slim. Of course, now the fat kid is no longer the odd one out in the class. It's the slim kid that's the odd one out in what in a generation. So there's a journey, you know, that none of that makes sense either, does it, on the face face of it. And the fatter I got, the hungrier I got, the hungrier I got, the fatter I got. And every so often I could lose the weight by starving myself and exercising like crazy. Calories in, calories out, which is what we were all imbued with. And I, I understood all the science, right, which is red meat's going to give you cancer, avoid sodium, fat makes you fat, you know, exercise more and all of this stuff. Um, and it didn't work. Now, it's all very well when you've got a client or patient in front of you and, it's, and the advice isn't working. What health professionals attempted to say is, well, they're, not, they're just not following the advice enough, right? And this is a conversation I had with Tim Noakes. When, because he's had a similar journey, in fact, we all have, right? When, when the person is you, you know you're following the bloody advice and you start to think, well, maybe the advice is the problem, not the patient. So that was the journey. And then serendipitously, I happened to, I, 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 I am, or at least I was, I think he's sold out a bit now. I was a big fan of Michael Mosley and his original High uh, Horizon programme about the 5-2 diet, eat fast and live longer. 
which I think is still on the web, on, on, on Tinternet. And I thought, I can do this. And I, I followed the 5-2 diet and I lost 10 kilos really easily. And all of a sudden I thought, well, none of what's happened fits the paradigm of the calories in, calories out or any of the other stuff. And so I thought, well, what is the fundamental underlying science? And I spent five years getting, getting to grips with it. And I realized that, and I'm you know, you realize more and more every day how ignorant you were and how ignorant you still are. But you also realize that none of the paradigms work. And I think we're up against these two huge vested interests. On the one hand, the farmer industry, and on the other hand, the processed food industry. Processed food makes you sick, and the farmer industry sort of makes you 10% better. And I thought, I just, you know what? I'm not motivated anymore with all of this stuff. Ended up selling, of the 10 pharmacies that we had, we sold seven. So we've still got three really busy pharmacies, and we took a new direction. And then the next thing that came, because I was now, you know, researching this space quite actively. And I was aware of the Israeli research about personalized diets and the relationship between sugar, microbiome. And when the first um, CGM, continual glucose monitors came out, I thought, okay, here's my opportunity. And I thought I'd try it with someone. And my N equals one first patient was Jeremy. Um, and I can talk about Jeremy because he's a testimonial on my website. And Jeremy, I mean, he was in his early 60s by then, but we've known each other since we were in our 30s. And Jeremy is a, he, he, he's um, an engineer by background, uh, serial health entrepreneur. I mean, the guy's a genius, multimillionaire, successful businessman. And Jeremy, he wasn't particularly fat, but he was hypertensive. And his hypertension had started in his 30s. Now, Jeremy being Jeremy, wasn't going to see any mere GP. He was seeing one of the country's leading cardiologists and he'd been seeing this guy for 30 years. And as I say, his kind of, the way that metabolic plate syndrome plays out is different within different individuals, right? And in Jeremy's case, it was significant hypertension, which I now know was driven by hyperinsulinemia, but I didn't know that then. So I said to him, I said, Jem, have a go at this. I think you'll find it really interesting. And I slapped a continual blood glucose monitor on him. Next morning, huge sugar spike. So I sent him a WhatsApp, Jem, what did you have for breakfast? And he said, oh, my usual morning all brand. So I WhatsApped him back and said, Jeremy, that's just sugar, right? Who knew? And long story short, with no calorie counting, no dieting as in, in any formal sense, I think he lost 10 kilos in a month, right? And his blood pressure is now in his boots because he's still taking all the medications. So he said, what shall I do? So I said, look, Jem, I could do a medicines use review. That's what pharmacists do. But I said, you've been, in front, you know, been with this cardiologist for 30 years, go back and see him. So I think by the time he got back to see the cardio, a couple more weeks had gone by, he'd lost another couple of kilos. Blood pressure was even lower, right? Now, just bear in mind this scenario. He'd been seeing the same guy, he's retired now, this cardio, but he'd been seeing the same guy for 30 years. And the way that you treat blood pressure is you take the first uh, antihypertensive treatment and over time you titrate the dose either up to the maximum for that drug or the maximum the patient will tolerate. 
And when that stopped working, you had a second drug, and a th let's suffice it to say that Jeremy was taking four different drugs, probably 20 doses for his hypertension. Albeit it was controlling his blood pressure, he was getting side effects. And who wants to be taking 20 drugs or 20 doses? So he goes to see this guy who's been seeing for 30 years, and the guy says to him, I have never seen anything like it in my life, and immediately halves his medication. We're now two years on, I think Jeremy's 23 kilos lighter, and the only drug he's taking is a statin, and the only reason he's taking that is because I can't convince him he doesn't need it. <laughs> so that's my kind of N equals one, well, N equals two health journey, if you like. But it made me realise I was onto something. Um, and, you know, I am a scientist. Um, I understand how clinical trials work. That's part of our training. And I knew that N equals one isn't going to persuade anyone of anything because everyone's got one magic story. So I thought, well, let's try this on a few more people and blow me down. So I tried it on people with different sets, different subsets of what we now would call metabolic syndrome, uh, uh, different ages, different genetic makes up, makeups, male and, and I kept getting these unbelievable results, results that were just so much better than I ever got with the drugs. So I thought I'm definitely on to something. So we created a sort of a soft launch of the Prolongevity program. We didn't even call it that at that stage. It was just, you know, a weight management type of a thing as a subset of the pharmacy services we were already offering. And that went on for six months. And after six months, I thought, you know what? Um, I don't want to be spooning tablets into people anymore. And I think this has got legs and I want to devote the rest of my professional life to really helping people because I really feel fulfilled now. It's taken me, I've been in practice 30 odd years and now I feel fulfilled by what I'm achieving. And so we, of the 10 pharmacies we had, we sold seven. Um, we've still got three really busy pharmacies and operating that in a pandemic is a whole other story, probably for another day. And we created Prolongevity as a, you know, we went through branding and all the kind of creation that you have to do. You'd have gone through that with your own business. And it's just, the most fulfilling thing I've ever done. And I suppose that's, you know, you listen to David Unwin, who's also one of my heroes, and he talks about being quite a burnt, burnt out, disappointed GP who was thinking about retirement. And now the guy's full of life and energy. And I, I tell you, when I get somebody who starts off as a client, who's a bit overweight, a bit hypertensive, a bit exhausted, a bit miserable, not sleeping very well, and you see them four to eight weeks later and the light has come on into their eyes. It's not really the weight loss, it's the re-energization, it's the positivity. And, and it, to be able to help people in that way is just the best thing I've ever done. So, you know, it's, it's given me a completely new lease of, of life professionally. So I'm sorry, that was a very long answer to a very short question. <laughs> no, it's great. It's, uh, it's such a great story. And, you know, all credit to you for um, doing a Tim Noakes, if you like, and realizing that um, late on in your career that there was another way. You know, I think that's something that a lot of people just can't cope with. You know, and uh, people who have dedicated their lives to one particular paradigm just can't accept that there there could be another way, or even if they suspect that the this new way is correct 
that they, they, they psychologically can't handle the idea of having been mistaken. I completely agree. Cognitive dissonance, right? Um, because you, I mean, I, now I'm angry, and quite a lot of us are angry, because we realised that we were given all the right appropriate skills um, to be useful clinicians, but the truth was hidden from us. And the conclusions were, you know, it's a bit like gravity, right? Ansel Keys has become sort of medical gravity. Ansel Keys and the diet heart hypothesis. And nobody really questions gravity, right? Every time you, I don't know, change the wheel on a car or whatever, you don't feel that you've got to go back and reprove gravity to prove how the whole thing works. You just accept that gravity is. And I think this whole diet heart hypothesis and all the associated bollocks, basically, if I'm allowed to use that word on your podcast, um, it's become a, 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 a you know, a, like gravity that no one dares question it because everyone believes it and everyone's taught it. And it's, it's so fundamentally accepted so widely that why would you go back and question it? You just would go from there and move forward. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've got this like uh, mimetic theory of, you know, how myths persist and we all need to outsource our thinking to some extent and we all need shorthands to remember things. We can't remember all the facts about everything. So that's why, sure. you know, five a day and uh, healthy whole grains and red meat's bad, all these things seem like really neat answers to yep. terrible problems and that's so appealing yeah yeah absolutely and all based in i think at its at the beginning really poor science which has then become amplified by vested interests as i say of the food industry and the pharma companies and then i'm in reading nina tyshot's book at the moment big fat surprise and because she's an investigative journalist you She's, go, she's gone in detail interviewing all the naysayers at the time and how they were suppressed and looking again at the evidence. And it's, it's really hard because once you see the light, you can't unsee it. And once you start practicing in the way that I now practice, it's impossible to go back. And it's so obvious when you kind of think, well, it all makes sense. Evolutionary biology dictates <laughs> how all this is. And it, everything, I mean, obviously our understanding is imperfect, but everything fits with everything, doesn't it? The clinical picture fits with the way that the drugs work or the drugs don't work. Um, and I'm on a mission now because I, no health professionals are taught anything about sleep or nutrition or exercise. All we're taught is wait for the symptoms and then suppress the symptoms with drugs. And we're all aware that there's a kind of, you see a cluster of diseases that you see autoimmune diseases often in a cluster and that the people with autoimmune diseases are also more inclined towards, you know, the metabolic syndrome related diseases, the cancer, the dementia, the type 2 diabetes. But we're not ever taught that they're linked. We're taught, well, wait for the symptoms of this, suppress it with a drug over here, wait for the symptoms of that, suppress it with a drug over there. None of the dots are ever joined up. Of course, I've 
well, with the help of people like Tim Noakes and David Unwin and, you know, various inspirational people, most of whom you've had on your podcast, I've been able to join the dots now. Yeah, and would you be able to put a figure on how much less prescribing would happen if a healthy lifestyle were widely adopted? Oh, it would be huge. Because if you take the most widely prescribed drugs, the statins, $100 trillion industry. I mean, I'm in primary prevention, so if you haven't had a stroke or a heart attack, I believe there's, unless you've got really exceptional circumstances, there's no indication, right? So you would probably reduce the use of statins, and I'm not anti, I'm not a statin designer, I'm not anti-statins, I'm, you know, I'm not anti-drug, I'm just anti the excessive use of them. My guess is you'd reduce the use of statins to one or two percent of its current worldwide usage. So instead of being a hundred trillion, it would be one trillion. Um, given, and this is another thing that health professionals are not taught, right? I've gone back and followed um, Weston A. Price and some of the stuff that he, the point is this, you know that we're all getting fatter and more diabetic, right? We can see it. But I never knew that these are all brand new man-made diseases that didn't exist 120 years ago. So, you know, I've got this kind of presentation and I say that, um, I say Bill Gates wants to rid the world of malaria, which is feasible, right? That's a, that's a possible thing. And my mission is to rid the world of type 2 diabetes. Because we know, we know more need, there's nothing inherent about our lives or our world that means we have to have type 2 diabetes. It's an optional lifestyle disease so my and I guess along the way you think about all the relationships um, between uh, poor diet and mental health and again broadly unexplored but some people are pioneering it we would reduce the drugs budget by 90% and just imagine if we invested that in a proactive public health approach instead so I've also reached the conclusion that actually the money is there in health systems to do a really good job, but we're spending the money the wrong way. Now, I know we in the low carb community are a bit sniffy about Public Health England because of their you know, slowness to uptake the low carb. But people like me who know the organization well and the people within it well, have a lot of time for that organization because that's only one thing they do and they do a lot of fantastic work. They're misdirected at the very top in their dietary guidelines, but don't mistake that, that the entire organization is misdirected. I don't believe it is. The, the spend is this, UK drug um, NHS budget is 140 billion. Public Health England budget is 4 billion. Or to put that another way, in my view, we spend 99% of the budget locking the horse locking the door after the horse has bolted, 1% of the budget tethering the horse. And my view is that if we, if we took 1% off the NHS England budget, they wouldn't even notice. Invest that 1% in public health England, you've doubled their budget. Rinse and repeat. And just imagine what we could achieve with that. And where would you, where would you see the best kind of spending going 
is, you know, I, we can talk about this later, but I'm at the moment doing health coach training with a New Zealand-based company called Precure. And their whole company ethos is about prevention being better than mm-hmm. cure. And it's, it's um, you know, great to see this kind of health coaching and uh, people like yourself, the Unwins, Tim Noakes, telling people who already have these illnesses, look, you can... Uh, partially reverse you know there's controversy about calling it reversal or, or yeah. remission or whatever yeah. but yeah, yeah. you know we'll understand what we what we mean here we'll yeah. um, and that's great but again it'd be best if people didn't end up in that position the question mm-hmm. is in a in a milieu of uh, cheap processed food which um, uh, you know and a, and a skills gap and cooking and uh, maybe even a uh, a price gap in good food you know how do you how does a public health body start to address that actually my starting point will be slightly different because i think my starting point would be to re-educate the health professionals because the as so long as all the health professionals are incul- inculcated with the old perceived wisdom then anybody else will be swimming against the, against the tide, and even the enlightened health professionals will be swimming against the tide. Now, to just give an example, community pharmacists in a day have 1.6 million contacts, health-related contacts with people. 1.6 million a day. Just imagine if every community pharmacist believes what I believe, right? We've got 11,000 shop windows that we can use to broadcast public health. And we're doing it really effectively with the COVID vaccines, right? So when we really turn our minds to what a campaign could be and we do it in a coordinated way, we're very, very effective at it. And if everyone understood that actually the best way to combat COVID is to have a really good immune system, and the best way to achieve that is, you know, effectively get, get the right amount of sleep, um, uh, eat the right food, and do a certain amount of exercise, just think what we could achieve. Yeah, it'd be amazing. Do you think that, I can see where doctors who have the sort of Damascene moment where they realize that this really works and that hmm. some of their esteemed colleagues are, have been practicing it for years. There's, yeah. as David Unwin says, if there is a risk, can someone show me where it is? Um, yeah. But, I, and that means you know less stress for them, less stress for the patients, um, yeah. less uh, unnecessary spend, and so on and so forth. But d- can you see how pharmacists might be reluctant as the turkeys voting for Christmas kind of thing? Well, we're only the turkeys voting for Christmas in as much as how our payment structure operates pays us for the medicines we dispense. And... I think we should be paid more for the medicines that we don't dispense. And I was involved along the way, all this restructuring I talked about, with creating an entire thing called Healthy Living Pharmacy. And you might link to it. If you could just Google Healthy Living Pharmacy. And it started in Portsmouth, which had amongst the highest health inequalities in the country. And if you look at areas of high health inequality, the one outlet you find isn't a GP by and large, it's a community pharmacy. And remember, we in community pharmacy, we see people at all stages of their life. 
and we're not perceived as threatening. So they've characterised, I'm not knocking my GP colleagues, right, so please don't misinterpret what I'm about to say. They've characterised the relationship of the doctor and the patient as a bit of a parent-child relationship, whereas community pharmacy tends to be much more one of equals. And I'll give you an example of that, because um, I've been passionate about preventive public health for many, many years. I provided smoking cessation services um, as a leader in that before it was ever an NHS adopted service. Because back in, and um, nicotine replacement therapy became available during the Thatcher years. And the view of the Thatcher government was that if you smoke, it's your problem, and why would the NHS pick up the tab? Right? And we would probably, you know, have a different perspective on that now, but that was the perspective. So I pr was providing smoking cessation services and getting the same sort of satisfaction from that 10 years before it was ever introduced in the NHS. And when they did introduce it to locally in the NHS, I trained the doctors, not the other way around. So the potential for community pharmacy in that space could be huge. And if you look at the elements of our contracts, so how we're paid, yes, we are paid mainly to dispense medication and to help people get the best value. And I don't think the medication will ever go away, it will just be less. I mean, I'm busy deprescribing now. We're not paid for deprescribing. And yet the experts in deprescribing are pharmacists because we're far more confident about deprescribing. And if you look at the papers out there for deprescribing in diabetes, I've just helped um, edit another one, lots of pharmacists involved. There's nothing about us, you know, actually pharmacists, generally speaking, are really well aware of the limitations of drugs and the side effects. So we're not gung-ho about it. So th there is a com conflict of interest within our current payment system. It is literally Turkey's voting for Christmas to an extent. But remember, healthy living pharmacy is a, a small but significant aspect of our total remuneration now. So if you took all the things that I do and modelled a new pharmacy contract around, yes, we'll pay people for dispensing medication, but we'll pay them a lot more for spending time with patients, advising about all the things that I advise. And if they de-prescribe, they get to keep some of the benefits. Some of it becomes, as it does with the GP's personal income, some of it can be reinvested in services, right? So there's no inherent, you know, pharmacists, most pharmacists you speak to would, would love to be able to do that. If they were given the skills and the empowerment and the opportunity, I, they would start tomorrow, I promise you. Yeah, I mean, it was really interesting reading uh, David and Jen Unwin's paper recently um, about how much they how much their practice saves in diabetes drugs alone. Yeah. That's that, that's not even um, including the the most important thing, which is that the patient's lives turn around. Absolutely, yeah. um, but but also other things like. Um, really expensive surgical procedures like diabetic yep. limb amputations and that kind of thing. And if, if you could extrapolate uh, out to all of the GPs in the UK, then it's probably in the hundreds of millions just in diabetes drugs alone. Oh, yeah. So the, the um, NHS drugs budget now is, is about, I might be slightly wrong, but it's more or less 20 billion and probably 17 billion of that is in primary care. And 10% of 
uh, the drugs budget goes on diabetes. So even if you were, even if your estimate earlier of the main drugs being um, cut to one or two percent, if we're super conservative and say yeah. actually it gets cut to ten percent um, yeah. to allow for other drugs, then you're talking about the spend going from sort of 15, 20 billion down to one and a half, two billion. And yeah. then you've got that that money now, which can go to these kinds of services that you're yeah. talking about. So that's one way, but I think you also, also asked a very other profound question, which I didn't address, but I think we must, which is it's all, right, all very well for people like me to go and buy organic uh, avocados in, in Waitrose because we can afford it, right? What about the people who can't? And um, I always like to reference the information on the Public Health Collaboration website because there's lots of really cheap, healthy meals there that you can illustrate. Um, so it, healthy food doesn't have to be that expensive. But even then, when you can feed an entire family for a quid at, I don't know, um, Iceland, what will you do if you're that short of cash? So to me, there's kind of two or three agendas here. One is that we have to educate. I think, you know, not you, but I see a lot of my clients and a lot of the younger people in, in general have a lost sense of what food is. Food is something that comes in a package from a supermarket. And there's no sense of that being connected to what the farmer does or how things are grown or, you know, we're just a big biochemical reaction, aren't we? All that's forgotten. So we've got, you know, I, I know some people love Jamie Oliver, some people hate Jamie Oliver. I think he's done some brilliant work in that space. And if you pick the best of what he's done, you know, Jamie's school dinners. And I, I, have you seen Jamie's um, TED Talk on uh, Diabetes TED Talk? No, I haven't actually. I would, I, honestly, if you're not in tears at the end, you've got no soul. And he literally walks on the stage with a wheelbarrow full of sugar empties it on the stage and says, this is what we're feeding our kids. It is brilliant. So um, I know he's, you know, there's some controversy, but you know, the best of Jamie Oliver, fantastic. And he's absolutely right about all of that. So the other belief I have is that the, the money's there in the system, right? We can free the money up from the money we're not gonna spend and all these drugs that have marginal benefits, if we're honest. We need to educate people, and I think educating people, you know, we've forgotten what education means. Ed, yes, I know education can be algebra, but education can also be life skills. And we've kind of, life skills are not taught, are they, in school, by and large. And then the other belief I have is this. We can either pick up the tab of all the cardiometabolic disease when people get to their 40s, 50s and 60s very expensively in the NHS, which is no one questions the subsidy, it's all free, right? But why could we not get people on low income and say, for you, here's free education and here's some subsidised food? Why is that heretical? But when they get to 60 and they need a tonne of drugs and amputations and, 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 no one questions it. So I think we can recycle the money in that way too. So that's when they make me health minister, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, you know, I, I agree about Jamie Oliver. I think he gets a lot of flack and there's been some controversies, but 
Um, not only is he a great chef, I mean, I, I worked in restaurants after I left school and um, it was his books which really got me into cooking. And um, he, But he's also done that education uh, side, which I think he gets a lot of flack for, um, you know, there was... There was um, there was pictures of a school that was doing some program of his, I think, where parents were giving McDonald's over the fence. Yeah, they were looking the chips through the fence. Jamie's school dinners, yeah. And there's a brilliant program in England called Chefs in Schools, where oh, they've been um, they've been getting chefs in, and cause it, it was it was someone who used to work in really high end places um, in London. And she wanted a fresh challenge and she knew there was a problem with the procurement process in schools, you know, in order to make sure that there's a reliable supply chain of food, which is obviously an important thing. And to centralize it as much as possible to make savings because school budgets are tight, you end up with basically chicken dippers and stuff that you deep fry and vegetable oils and all the rest of it. So, and things with, you know, you know, stable shelf life, um, full of sugar and all the rest of it. So um, the challenge was chefs and schools lady, I forget her name, wanted to go in and show that you could actually provide freshly made healthy food and come in under budget. And she did it. So the idea that it's inherently more expensive does not bear out when you have skilled people doing that job and so now it's in several schools and um they buy local and the uh the kids get involved so there's fresh food made every day and it's not like they're low carb or anything like that you know they're making fresh bread every day they're they're you know feeding the kids whole foods but there's been remarkable improvements and i think the the education side and um being in schools like that is super productive. And um, I guess it can be a two-pronged approach. You can you can help people who already have these issues and you, you sort of get the good information into the younger generation so that by the time they get to 40, 50, 60, instead of seeing these problems that this generation is having, and even people my age who are kind of 40, give or take five or 10 years, are starting to get yeah. diagnosed with type two diabetes. Absolutely. Yeah, they're finding it in preteens now. I mean, diabetes used to be old ge- old geezers like me, right? Sixty plus. Um, it's been they're being seen in preteens, and according to Robert Lusting, even babies now. I mean, I've I've now because you can't unsee this stuff. Um, I realised that my my for all the right reasons, I I fed my children as babies all the wrong foods. Well, my partner's a GP and uh, her kids are starting to produce their own offspring now. And we, you know, they're so, they, they've become inculcated in the healthy food. So I can tell you the next generation will not be fed on shit from the start. They will be, you know, they're fed not zero carb, but lowish carb, healthy, you know, nutritious food from, and they've been brought up on it. And then you look at baby milk. And I tell you, the baby milk is the worst. Yeah, there's a terrific talk by uh, Nick Mailer at the, what's it called now? The Ancestral Health Symposium from a few years ago, which I'll link to because it's really 
haunting actually around the subject of breastfeeding yeah. and, and you look at baby milk and it's full of the wrong sugar and it's half of them have got seed oils in i mean how much more and you know i always say that um if you think about it at a human being at its most vulnerable in uterus how many people know that the baby in utero is in ketosis how many people know that breastfed babies are primarily in ketosis? And I'm increasingly of the belief that that's our natural state. I mean, I believe, I mean, I'm not keto, and I believe in being metabolically flexible. But are you telling me that two years, two million years of evolution puts babies into ketosis for all the wrong reasons? It can't be, can it? Um, two or three things that you've mentioned have been really uh, some of these uh, links and so on aren't, aren't, certainly aren't, weren't known to me I hope that you'll put some links to some of the programs and so on in the show show notes as well because um, you know I'm much as I hope you're learning one or two things from me I'm, I'm certainly learning just as much from you from a very different perspective well yeah definitely I'll link to all this stuff um, so Talking about prolongevity, you offer a continuous glucose monitor to check what yeah. foods spike different people's blood sugar. Mm -hmm. I'm interested to know how much variation you see from person to person and what foods surprise you in spiking yeah. some people's blood sugar and not others. So um, we mentioned TED Talks. The other one I would reference is Aran Segal's TED Talk. Um, and I think the best research in this area was done by the Israelis at the Weizmann. And um, I think two, three years ago when Karen and I were in Israel, we actually went and met the day two team. And they've done this fantastic research. So my numbers might, might, might be slightly wrong, but directionally what I'm saying is ac accurate. What they did is they, they got a thousand people. They did microbiome analysis. In other words, they looked at the bugs in their gut and they gave them a continual blood glucose monitor. And then they, because they're genius scientists, much cleverer than me, they applied a machine learning algorithm and they were able to show that what determines your response to any particular meal or combination of foods is the microbiome. Um, so again, when I'm giving talks, I always say that, you know, we, human beings have got 22,000 genes. It sounds pretty posh, right? How many people know that an earthworm or a fruit bat have got more genes than a human being? Or that we don't have that many more genes than a, than a banana? And the genius of Homo sapiens is our ability to harness those bugs in our gut. And that is, explains why there's this theoretical thing called the glycemic index, which is your sugar response to a, a, to a food. So in other words, if I have a teaspoon of sugar, how much does my sugar uh, blood glucose go up? If I have a slice of bread or a potato or some rice, so there's this theoretical index, index that relates it, but it's very theoretical and it really doesn't play out very well with individuals. And if you feed a thousand people an identical meal, you might logically assume that all thousand people by and large will react in the same way. Not so. So, you know, in science, we have this thing called a bell-shaped curve and you kind of focus on the center ground but no one really talks about how wide the curve is. And in the case of sugar response, it's incredibly wide. So 
in my case, for example, that healthy sourdough, huge sugar spike. Um, as, you, as you probably know, I'm Jewish, and there's a traditional plaited bed called cholla, very sugary, has no effect on me, I'm pleased to say. So if you feed a thousand people the same meal, you get equal and opposite and often always, almost always counterintuitive responses. So although in theory so much you know, white supermarket bread, so much you know, rice krispies, so much pizza hut, all has the same glycemic effect, for an individual it's very, very variable. So, I, so I, as I anticipated I would do, see huge individual variations, husband and wife. And um, Tim Spector again has done fantastic work on this. So he's the guy with all the twins and he's got this huge set of identical twins. And you kind of would assume that identical twins would, you know, by and large die on the same day of the same thing. I mean, not exactly, but you know, not at all. And the, he's been able to demonstrate, because you can't experiment with human beings ethically very well, but with um, identical twins, nature and nurture are the same. One twin will be happy, one twin will be sad, one will be fat, one will be thin, etc. And he's been able to show that the difference is the microbiome. So again, I've given you a long answer to a short question, but the answer is there are huge variations, they're hugely counterintuitive, and also there's a lot of complexity, which is why I call it precision nutrition. So we're increasingly moving towards personalized medicine um, based primarily, I think, about people's genetics make makeup, which misses the rest of the genetic makeup, right? <laughs> Ignores the 99% that isn't your genes, it's the microbiome. So it's, it's this fantastic journey. So I get clients to try lots of different foods and different food combinations because the order in which you eat the food, the time of day that you eat the food. Um, and so if I've got a client, as I had, I had one client, he's in his eighties fit guy, pre-diabetic. And he's, do you know what Graham, I don't care about the rice and the potato, but if it's the choice of giving up the bread or, or eating the bread, but taking the metformin, I'll, I'll take that, right? The guy's 82, that's an entirely legitimate, reasonable choice, right? Just like it's an option to carry on smoking. No one would say it's a good thing, but if you're 80 odd and you're fit and healthy and you want to carry on smoking, who am I to tell you you can't? Anyway, we tried 20 or 30 different breads with this guy, 20 or 30 different fillings, and by f we found two or three breads that didn't spike him, five or six fillings, and he's now able, all right, he's not eating exactly the same bread, but more or less, he can find three or four breads with lots of different fillings that he can still eat, no sugar spike. So that's kind of what I'm trying to do. You know, I, I hear the word diet and it makes me, just the word makes me miserable and hungry and you feel it, it's all about abstinence and denial, right? Most of my clients end up consuming more calories, not fewer, because they've all been like, I want to control my weight, I've got to eat less because they're eating the wrong calories. So it's all about the quality of the calories, not the number. And most of them end up eating a greater and more diverse diet because, because they've been worried about their diet. They've been, oh, I can't eat red meat. I can't eat this. I can't eat that. I don't want to eat butter. So they, what they're doing, they've kind of reduced their diet to less and less enjoyable, less and less diverse, more and more processed food. And I get them moving in the exact opposite direction. 
So far from being a diet, it's actually a dietary journey that actually enables people to have a wider variety of more interesting food, not be hungry, and because it's precision nutrition, we know, you know where the pitfalls are and we avoid them. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. It's, it's, it's so fascinating, all the stuff about microbiome and the individualised nature of uh, food responses. Yeah. You know, it's such a young science. And I yeah. think the, the complexity is, is so great that it, it might take quantum computing or something to really properly understand um, an individual's microbiome, but it's constantly changing too. So um, I like the adage that a healthy microbiome is the microbiome of a healthy person. And Absolutely. That, um, you know, the, the usually the worst offenders are refined sugar, refined flours, and veg oils for causing problems with the microbiome. But 100%. clearly it's, it's interesting that, uh, you know, I've read some studies where, for example, uh, high-fat yogurt causes huge spikes in some, some people. people it does, yeah. Yeah. And it's so interesting to hear that there's um, a variety of breads that don't cause a problem. There's the um, the day too. So this um, Israeli research has, has now been uh, monetized because they're, they're very, very good at that stuff. Um, and um, <laughs> it was funny when uh, Karen and I were in Israel, as I say, a couple of years ago, we went and met the team. And I was trying to persuade them to bring the app here, but they decided to focus on America. But I managed to persuade them to actually let us have a go at it. And we were staying with some friends, and to put it this way, these friends were not impressed with us leaving poo samples in their fridge. <laughs> Albeit, you know, it, it, it was wrapped up and so on, but we had to t take poo samples and send them off just as you do. And we've both got the day two apps on our phone. And the accuracy with which it predicts how you're gonna respond, you can literally build a meal um, and as you build the meal, you can add things and subtract them and get more glycemic response and less glycemic response. And it works remarkably. It does work remarkably well. Interesting. So it, it's really, really individual and it, it's quite, quite fascinating. So, yes, you're right. So um, I was a bit of a geeky kid and I remember reading Watson and Crick's original book on the DNA and the discovery of DNA. And I must have been 13, 14. Uh, and it was fascinating, it still is fascinating. And the human genome was finally elucidated, what, about 20 years ago, something like that? Well, given that the microbiome is 100 times greater than the human genome, you're absolutely right, this is very new, very emerging science, and we're just scratching the surface of the surface of it, to the point where, because they've got these new processing techniques, I mean, when I was at uni, everyone knew about E. coli. Right, you've probably heard of E. coli, and you, we all knew about E. coli. It's a, it's, it's a kind of when you get the right bug in the wrong place, it causes a problem. So if it, it ends up in the urine, you end up with a UTI, urinary infection. I now know the reason we all know so much about E. coli is it grows really well on an agar plate. So most of the bugs in your gut are obligatory anaerobes. In other words, they can't survive in an oxygenated atmosphere. As soon as you take them out of an, the, the atmosphere of the gut, where there's no oxygen, and present them on an agar plate, the majority die. So the reason that E. coli plates very well is because it's one of the few bugs in your gut that can live 
in, in an oxygenated atmosphere actually turns out it's a pretty small player in the microbiome but who knew we didn't have the technology now that there's this new technology where they can fully elucidate the total DNA and RNA of, of, of all the bugs and remember there's bacteria there's eukaryotes there's fungi there's viruses there's this incredible co colony they are literally ha there's this, th this thing called the tree of life which is the taxonomy of all the bacteria they're having to completely rewrite it because they're realizing now that there are bugs they didn't know existed and that all the relationships that the evolutionary relationships that they thought they knew based on the old science was only a one percent understanding so I think this is another fascinating area, not just physical health, but mental health. And I believe that two things will revolutionize medicine in the next decade. One is the understanding of insulin resistance, because it can't be denied. The science is so clear. And the other one is the understanding of the microbiome. And that is the revolution, I believe, that can get the NHS out of its terrible hole. And it's not just our NHS, it's NHSs worldwide. Yeah. And, you know, the microbiome stuff is so profound. Um, the uh, the fecal microbiota transplants yeah. um, that are used mainly to treat C. difficile, yeah. uh, the persistent infection in the, in the gut that um, people, you know, flattens people's energy, it makes them more or less bed-bound and struggle with any types of foods and getting nutrition and... Yeah. Um, they, uh, to not put too fine a point on it, they take someone else's poo and put it in someone else who's got C. difficile. 96% um, full recovery rate yeah. happens so rapidly. Pioneered in Glasgow, actually. And it's, it's it had, a couple of people have had problems from it and that occasionally people die um, because you've got to be super careful about not uh, infecting people. Um, but th what they've also found, and they've got to be much more careful about the donor now, because it used to just be they would say, you know, find someone who's willing to to go yeah. through this for you, right? But then they realised that, you know, if someone who had some mental health problems, for example, um, that could be a factor; it could be passed on, or yeah. someone who was thin at the time of giving their sample, but was actually it became overweight, was destined yeah. to be overweight, if you like, yeah. could yeah, yeah. pass that on. So it's remarkable, the power of it. And I agree. And it's uh, people have tried to uh, synthesize it into a tablet. And like you say, uh, obligate anaerobes just don't survive that journey, mm. and especially through the stomach acid. Yeah. So um, at the moment, it's just too unpalatable as a practice to do on a widespread basis but yeah. when they work out how to um or when people realize the power of it i think it's going to be a revolution like you say it, it, it will um and you're absolutely right so it all sounds very innocent uh, do you know as they say do not try this at home and they're absolutely right um and your the c diff is the brilliant example i know professor elsa hart is doing a big research program around all this i don't know if you follow her she'd be yeah. great for your podcast if you can get her on you will find her on youtube and i've, I've met her around uh inflammatory gut disease so inflammatory bowel disorders which are like all the other diseases are growing rapidly 
and she's actually got um, money from um, an NHS um, tr to set up an NHS trial looking at the role of um, the microbiome in Crohn's and colitis. So it's kind of next stage on from C. diff. And I don't know where she is with that trial, but I th I'm, I'm sure that she'll come out with some amazing results. Yeah, I, 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 can't, time. I can't wait to, to see how it all how it all pans out. Um, I, th I think we've covered a lot. It's been it's been really interesting um, hearing about your background and what you're doing right now, and um, you know where you see it all going. Um, and uh, we're going to do something different today in that we're turning the tables a little bit, and what we're going to do is record some extra of you talk, you asking me questions because this recording is going to be not only available to my usual listeners, but uh, on your ProLongevity website. So yeah. what would you like to know? Well, like most people in this space, you've had your own health journey. Um, you certainly didn't start out, and this isn't where you're going to finish, you're still a young guy, but just... Um, just tell us your own health journey and what's led you to where you are today, which is kind of not the obvious endpoint given your background. Yeah, I would agree. Um, well, I had very patchy uh, health from childhood. My mum used to say that we had a season ticket to the Children's Hospital in Glasgow, and um, it was various things, uh, a lot of stomach issues, and um, turned out that a lot of these things over the years were autoimmune in nature but there was no joined up thinking in that regard like you said earlier there was an identification of a syndrome or a disease and then either drugs or um or surgery so i had surgery twice on achalasia of the cardio where my uh my, my esophagus closed um likely in response to eating the wrong foods and having an autoimmune reaction although it's a poorly understood condition. And in fact, I was one of only uh, two children that the, uh, the, the consultant had ever seen uh, with, with this. So I, I'm, I'm a case study somewhere on PubMed. And it wasn't just that, it was various other things. And I definitely had bad reactions to certain foods, specifically foods that we know now are uh, triggers for autoimmune problems. So dairy, grains, all the things, sugar, all the things I was addicted to. And I had uh, poor mental health, I would say. So I struggled to focus in school. I also had anxiety and uh, depressive tendencies. And that carried right through into adulthood where the problem of weight control reared its head. So when I was a kid, I was sometimes overweight and then when I was a teenager, it kind of went away because I was very active, playing a lot of sport. And uh, got through school, okay, went to university, um, straight out of school, but I dropped out almost immediately um, and worked in restaurants for five years or so. And then when I went back to uni, um, I kind of uh, took a bit of a left turn instead of uh, doing hospitality management or something like that. I went into physics. So I ended up with a, a physics degree and, uh, and after a year teaching English in China, started working a laser factory. 
So I was working as a, an engineer building and aligning and ultimately looking after a range of uh, high precision um, lasers that, you know, do high tech things. So it was, it was, it was interesting, but um, my health wasn't good. By that stage, I was struggling to control my weight. My, um, my attention problems were, were definitely there. My anxiety was off the charts. And I decided, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make an attempt to, to take, take my health more seriously now. And I, was, I guess I was probably 29 at the time or so. So Q doing the quote-unquote right thing with my health, which was eating less and moving more. Yeah. And I cut calories. I lost the excess weight over the course of about nine months. And it was brutal. I felt hungry all the time. Um, I started to tell myself, you know, nothing uh, tastes as good as thin feels and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. And I really hadn't changed how I ate. I just changed the amount that I ate. Just ate less and moved more. Exactly. And the problem was that I couldn't uh, disobey the hunger anymore. And so I would put the, put the weight back on and yeah. feel doubly depressed because like Andrew Jenkinson points out in one of the episodes of my podcast, your set, your weight set point actually goes up a little bit when you starve yourself like that. So when you do put the weight back on, you put it back on plus a little bit more. Yeah. Cause you can't game your appetite by just eating less and moving more. So yeah. I was a bit disappointed with that. And by that time I'd um, embarked on a PhD program. So I was at the, University of Glasgow again doing a gravitational wave PhD centered around lasers. Um, my focus was terrible. I actually struggled to, uh, I feel like I struggled to access my brain. It was, it was. There's probably difficult. something in there about a laser, a laser, a laser focus, hasn't there? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was, it was kind of uh, <laughs> sadly ironic um, <laughs> that the laser focus was, was missing. And, yeah. Um, I was I was really lucky because my one of my supervisors there, uh, Professor Ken Strain, who's been on the podcast a few times, he is a laser physicist. He's a, a gravitational wave physicist primarily, a, an experimental physicist, fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh. Um, you know, was involved in the multi multi uh, international team that discovered gravitational waves, uh, which led to the, the the heads of the of the collaboration getting the the Nobel Prize in Physics. You know, so he's a very smart guy. And yeah, yeah. He'd, um, he'd had chronic fatigue syndrome ME in his early 40s and more or less been told that he would likely never work again because yeah. the, uh, the doctors kind of had tried everything and they didn't understand it. Yep. And he did what he does best, which is research, and came across Gary Tobbs' Good Calories, Bad Calories, and... Um, thought, well, this makes sense. I'll cut out the carbs. And uh, it, he didn't realize at the time, but he was cutting out this, any seed oils as well. And um, within six months, he was running 10Ks again. Yeah. So it was, it was that stark. And so he was, he, and he, he in parallel to his continued successful uh, phys physicist career, he developed this encyclopedic knowledge of nutrition science. Yeah. So I was super lucky because I needed that at that time in my life. And actually, I ended up um, studying more nutrition science than physics. And 
I left the PhD to start my business because by about 2015, I'd heard of paleo, I'd heard Ken talk about, you know, he would, he would say strange things in meetings like, I only eat once a day or margarine isn't food. And yeah. I was like, I need to know more about this. Yeah, yeah. He would point me in the right direction to, to, to search these things out. And by March 2016, I was ready to kick into some kind of version of keto paleo. And the weight dropped off straight away. Um, How much did you lose? So when I was at my heaviest, I was about 14 and a half stone. And my, my sort of fighting weight, if I'm not, if I'm not in the gym doing weights, uh, was about um, 11 and a half stone. So you lost about three stone. Something like that um, yeah. in total. And the, the, the dif- difference was it was just so easy to keep off. And it wasn't, yeah. I didn't feel like it was a privation doing it. And that what made it sustainable. So um, keto it was interesting. And I think this is a, a problem with the messaging sometimes around keto and low carb. And it's the reason I chose the name Paleo Canteen for my business is that dairy can be a real problem for folk. And yeah. I kind of saw so many people doing keto and low carb successfully with loads of cheese, loads of cream, loads of butter, and maybe a few voices here and there, like, you know, Georgia Eid, for example, saying dairy can be a real problem. And the issue is it's very addictive. I find it very addictive, Mm -hmm. but um, it's not for me. And it's taken a long time and many sort of going back to it, thinking I'll be okay this time, uh, only to, you know, deplete uh, certain nutrients. You know, if, if, if I've eaten a lot of dairy for a period of time, then I find that I have to supplement with uh, zinc and B6 and um, various other things that seem to get depleted more when I eat these things. It's, it's fascinating. Mm. Um, regardless of that sort of long-term uh, over the last few years, wrestling with certain aspects of keto, paleo, low carb, the broad strokes were, I started it in early 2016 within weeks you know my, my weight had, had clearly come down um i never felt hungry i was loving the the rich nature of the food it um it, the, the one of the best things was i had you know since childhood had dreadful heartburn and some kind of esophageal reaction and a lot of the time i couldn't sleep flat i had to have like four or five pillows And uh, I would wake up multiple times during the night in pain. That just went away almost overnight and completely changed my life in that regard because my sleep improved uh, massively. Um, I had more energy and crucially, I felt like I had access to my brain power again. Mm. So I went from being, you know, I actually thought that because I'd gone through the previous year, the whole process of being diagnosed with ADHD because I thought maybe if I could just get a diagnosis and get some drug therapy, that yeah. it would sort it. Of course, we did not evolve over 2 million years to have a Ritalin deficiency. <laughs> Most of us didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I'll speak for yeah. myself here. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so um, 
of course, I'd tried the, the drug and it had improved my focus to some extent, but inevitably it, you build up a, a resistance and you need more and more to get the same effect and the side effects stack up and yeah. it's not addressing the root cause. Yeah. So it was amazing to have access to my brain again. And mm. um, it was a bit late by that stage to save the, the, the physics PhD. I thought I'm best suited in life passing this amazing thing that I've learned on to as many people as possible. So I founded Paleo Canteen in 2017, started off in the, uh, on the high street in Glasgow, um, doing paleo and low carb food. And that was fun. Uh, we were doing events and catering uh, for offices and um, outside outside events and stuff like that. And the, the plan was always to get to as many people as possible. And so started doing meal delivery. And that was interesting. But again, like the restaurant industry, it's very difficult to um, to make money, really. You know, uh, the margins on food are, are wafer thin and people want variety all the time. It's quite difficult to, to do that sort of thing. So I decided again to pivot and get to mo even more people. And so last year I brought out uh, our cookbook, Low Carb on a Budget, which has a forward by David Unwin and um, looks to address that accusation that low carb is necessarily a sort of middle class or elitist diet. Um, we'll link to that in the show notes, yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, and then, uh, last year, we, we also came out with uh, keto-friendly ice cream. So uh, it's made with um, dairy cream, although we're looking at future flavors being made with coconut cream so that people you know, like me or uh, vegans or uh, you know, just people who don't agree with dairy uh, mm. for some reason um, can, can enjoy. Um, but that's that's been very popular, and then just in the last couple of months, we've brought out a keto sugar-free chocolate, so it's dairy-free as well, and um, we've we've rolled that out, and uh, it's going well, and people can buy that from the website, and um, that's I'm really happy with what what we've, what we've built, and it's been a it's been great learning all about it, and applying that in a way that can get to as many people as possible. But what I'm working on at the moment is something that's extra satisfying for me. You know, I'm, uh, I think I mentioned earlier that um, I've been doing the health coach training with a New Zealand based company called Precure with a K. And that's, that was founded by professor Grant Schofield and um, he is a public health professor over in New Zealand who recognizes what we were talking about today in that um, prevention is better than cure, that there's a real public health problem around quality of life, years lost due to chronic illnesses that are entirely preventable and treatable instead of, um, instead of just masking symptoms with, uh, with drugs. And so, doing the health coach training, I'll be accredited with the UK Health Coaches Association and I, it will allow me to work one-to-one -one with people who want to learn more and need that extra bit of support because it's all very well and good providing products that can help. Yeah. But 
I think similarly to prolongevity, it's that human connection and the feedback loop of, okay, here's my health goal. Here's what I'm going to do about it. And is this working? Yeah. And having another person to talk to about that. And ultimately, beyond the one-to-one, I want to incorporate that into the business as a, a, a platform for people to, um, to get group health coaching. Um, so that it's it's open to a wider uh, participation because again I don't want to I, I want to be available one to one to people who want to spend that kind of money but not everyone has that kind of money or wants to spend that so um, I want to broaden it out so that there's a group element uh, available and so I'll be starting the one to one coaching later this year and implementing the the group side of things um, and the membership part of the website uh, early next year is the plan. So that's that's where I've come from, and that's where I, I hope to go. And um, now I've got lots of clients who say I've got a really healthy diet, and um, I never eat any chocolate because chocolate's unhealthy. Why are they wrong? Well, it's interesting. This all comes down to me about the sweetness thing. So I can overeat sweeteners. There's no doubt about it, um, but I don't overeat them in the same way that I overeat sugar. So what's quite interesting about uh, the chocolate that I make is we try and keep the ingredient list down, not because I think there's a magic number that if there's more than four ingredients, something's bad for you or anything. You know, if you go to a Michelin star restaurant, then some things will be made entirely of whole foods and be very healthy, but they'll have 10 ingredients because it's fancy. So it's not about that. It's about, making sure I'm not packing it with stuff that can cause people issues. So quite a lot of even healthier chocolates um, than your usual dairy milks or galaxies will be packed out with things like inulin powder, um, which can sometimes cause, you know, uh, gastric issues. And um, mine is really just cocoa butter, cocoa mass, erythritol as a sweetener and coconut milk powder. And so, you actually feel curiously full after eating it because um, cocoa butter is full of palmitic and stearic acid uh, to the fatty acid, to the saturated fatty acids, which uh, really drives satiety. So you, you know, you get these feedback signals um, quite quickly uh, that, that you feel, feel full. So, you also obviously get the benefits of not eating sugar. So all the, all the problems that sugar can cause with the teeth, with the microbiome, with, um, with digestion in general, and with, of course, a furthering cravings for things. Yeah. So it's not for everyone. Uh, some people find that sweeteners actually just prolong their um, negative relationship with any type of sweetened foods. But for me, certainly when I started doing low carb, eating uh, keto ice cream was a brilliant bridge away from the worst foods. And we can't pretend that these types of foods don't exist in the world. Absolutely. You know, we can't, um, we can't just magic them away. And, you know, we can work with people to realize that if you don't have chocolate or ice cream in the house, then you're far less likely to eat it. But it's still 
you know, everyone has bad days. And I find that things like keto desserts, treats are perfect for if you've just had a shit day and you want to eat something or you just want an occasional treat and you want to stick to your health goals. So I totally acknowledge that it's not for everyone and that for some people it can actually be a bridge back to their worst foods. But for many people, it's a brilliant way to enjoy a treat while sticking to your health goals. Absolutely agree with you. So one of the things we're trying to do with Prolongevity is to build an, an ecosystem um, and a community. The, um, so I've got some clients who always cook from scratch and at the other end of the line, I've got some clients who never cook from scratch and probably most of us are in between. And my idea is that we, around the Prolongevity program, I do my due diligence and I'm going to build a series of associations, I hope with independent boutique family businesses, who it's a way I can support them and maybe they support me a bit. And I can say to my clients, if you want some healthy chocolate, here's an option for you. If you want some healthy cake, there's the deliciously guilt-free. Low-carb bread, we're doing work with longevity flour. Uh, keto muesli, we're doing work with uh, Maria Lucia. And my idea is that over time we'll build a ser- we'll be like, you know, like a complete environment that people can go to my website, pick whatever they fancy, and know that I've done the due diligence they don't need to. And if they never cook from scratch, they don't need to do any of it. I'm sorry, if they, if they always cook from scratch, it might be irrelevant. But most people are kind of somewhere in the middle, including myself. Um, so to give them options that they know are safe. But I also think if we're going to make this viable, at some point we need viable businesses out of this because you can't carry on doing what you're doing unless at some point you can make an income from it. Um, and neither can I. And at the moment, my pharmacists still support all the massive investment, which is some um, significant sum I've made in prolongevity. At some point, it's going to have to wash its face or it won't have a future. And I believe that by all of us working together and creating a social movement through ch- for change for the public health collaboration, but also on the back, ethical businesses, nothing wrong with business and nothing wrong with profit. It's all about the ethics and the vision. We could have something really worthwhile. And so for each of the, co- the companies that I talk to, I make sure that we're on the same journey, so there's no conflict. And I feel that you and I, we don't have to agree over everything, but we certainly agree on principles and values. Um, that on my website there will be an opportunity for people to grab the products and get a bit of a discount code as well so it saves them a few bob and I made the decision right at the start that I don't want to earn anything out of it so all the discount, all the benefit goes to the client nothing goes to prolongevity or me and that way my clients never have to think well he's recommending that, is he recommending it for my benefit or his? So very much um, this is going to be part of um, and this podcast stands alone, obviously, but also I, I know that we're going to have a little offering on our website. We're going to have a little bio from you, and hopefully we'll be able to offer our, um, some kind of discount code to clients um, so that they will be able to find your products along with a variety of others. And it's kind of growing in that ecosystem. Yeah, it sounds great. And um, I'm delighted to make that connection. You know, I think... Um, What's really interesting about keto and low carb is the rate of adoption 
rate of widespread adoption. You know, yeah. in, in 2018, uh, probably January or so, in America, keto became um, more searched for term on Google than vegan. And it's, isn't it? it's moving that way in the UK. Yep. I think it's probably in the next year or two where there'll be a tipping point. I think, in fact, I think it may have already happened. Pretty much everyone I talk to now knows someone who's who's doing low carb or keto. Yeah. And so, and the great thing about it is it works. So there's no, there's no doubt in my mind that um, it's just going to keep growing. You can't, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. There's going to be a lot of pushback. You know, there's, yep. there's always nasty little hit pieces from um, journalists who either have an, an ideological objection to eating meat or they, they are maybe um, mistaken about the science and think that they're, uh, they're, they're kind of beast slaying a cult. But yeah. like David Unwin says, if there is a risk, can someone show me it, please? And um, therefore, the more people like yourself and the Unwins and um, other trusted members of society adopt this as a, a professional uh, route, I think the more untenable it will be to attack it. i tell you where I think the risk lies. I think the vegan movement started out perfectly decently and it's been absolutely hijacked by processed food. And I think the risk lies is that you'll go to the supermarket and where all the current shelves saying whatever it is, they'll say keto this, keto that, and it will be keto, but it will be keto shit. It won't be keto, real healthy whole food. It will just be, you know, just like the fake shakes that the NHS is currently promoting. It's Nestle and Kellogg's. And I think that's the biggest risk for me that as it grows, the, in, the food industry will just piggyback off the back of it and subvert it. Yeah, so you already see it happening. You know, you get uh, a lot of these Facebook groups where people are new to keto or low carb, and they say, "Oh, is this is this powder good?" And it's just some horrible powder. I mean, anything's keto if you eat a little of it enough. Exactly. Um, you know, a, a half a teaspoon of sugar is keto. It doesn't mean anything necessarily. Right. So yeah. it's already being hijacked. And I think what's great, though, is that there's a really knowledgeable and curious community around it who, you know, for want of a better expression, take the red pill and you can't unsee it. Like you said earlier, it's, um, it's a, uh, you know, it doesn't mean people are going to be interested, which I found out. Uh, in the first year that um, I was saying, look, the science is incredible. It's actually, it should be a revolution already. And people kind of go, well, yeah, I mean, I like you, you're a friend or you're, you're my uh, brother or, or you're my family member or whatever, but uh, I think I'll just stick to what the doctors say about. Absolutely. Thank you. So, um, but that's all changing and there's, there's an amazing community. So it, quite quickly, these products get slammed on these community forums. And I think you might find that um, there's a there's a co-opting of it in a broader sense from the food industry, like what's happened with veganism. But then there's a pushback. So maybe maybe food companies will get away with it for a year or two. Uh, and then they'll, they'll, they'll work out what their uh, market size is for that niche 
with their uh, unhelpful foods and then they'll, they'll probably not be able to get much bigger than that and um, because people talk about it so much um unless there's some kind of you know dystopian uh, limiting of freedom of speech on the internet i think <laughs> let's not go there <laughs> I, yeah yeah fingers crossed that um that, that doesn't happen then yeah. i think i think we're fine so I guess we should probably wrap it up because it, I could talk to you for hours, but I guess it could end up being just you and me. Everybody else has probably switched off. <laughs> um, if people want to find out more about you, where, where can they look? Yeah, so the, the website's paleocanteen.co.uk, P-A-L-E-O canteen.co.uk, and that's got all the information about, um, about the cookbook and about uh, the chocolate and ice cream, which is under the brand name Scoundrel. Um, or you can go on to Paleo Canteen on any of the social media uh, channels or at Eat Scoundrel on any of the social media channels. I, I originally did Scoundrel ice cream, but um, it looks like lice cream. So <laughs> uh, I just did Eat Scoundrel. But it could be vegan. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. It's, it, it, yeah. Um, it's quite good. I did eat scoundrel as well because now I've done the chocolate, and there might be further products in the future. So, um, yeah, um, that's where people can find me uh, or uh, Twitter at Paleo Alley, A L L Y. But I, I, I kind of don't. I'm not very active on that one. Um, so I would, I would suggest the former is better. Brilliant. And how about you? Where can where can everyone find you? So the easiest way is just to Google. Uh, Prolongevity, so just longevity with pro in front of it. Um, or if you Google Graham Phillips pharmacist, that I should usually come up. My Twitter handle is at Graham S. Phillips, so G R A H A M S P H I L L I P S. And the Twitter for Prolongevity is longevity underscore pro. And the other thing is we've got a really active Facebook group, Wellness with Pro Longevity, free to join, lots of chat, lots of resources, lots of help, part of the community. So, you know, if you do nothing else, please have a look at that and consider joining. Brilliant. Well, I really appreciate you coming on, Graham. It's been great to chat and hope you have a great day. You too. Take care. Thanks for listening, everyone please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Thanks, and see you next time.